This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to episode eight of Climify this season. Thanks for continuing to tune in. The team here spends a lot of time on the show, all in hopes that more people listen, are inspired, and take climate action in the design classroom or studio. And that reminds me to remind you that you need to stick around until the end of the episode. Don't just fast forward to it though. At the end, we have a design assignment that each of our guests provide for you. The assignments are also linked at climatedesigners.org forward slash edu forward slash climify. There you can quickly find each assignment, copy and paste them into your syllabi and get rolling. I wanted to give a big thanks to our podcast manager and co-producer of this episode, Bianca Sandico. She's taking on a larger role at Climify and doing a great job. Remember, teamwork makes the dream work. And speaking of dreams, our guest today is certainly the dream guest and came highly recommended by our last guest, Nisha Mary. I love that. Not only do I want this show to connect designers with climate experts, but I also want our guests to find areas to collaborate. This show is all about connections. And Sarah Ichioka, our guest today, her work connects across many disciplines. She's an urbanist, strategist, curator, and writer, concerned about helping organizations create positive environmental, cultural, and social impact. Two of the main things I learned from Sarah in our discussion was the possibilist mindset and her five principles of regenerative design. I found them both inspiring and practical, two things we need when we're facing such a looming and grave challenge. Sarah is hopeful, however, and I hope you can see through her work. She is an example for us all to follow. My name is Sarah Ichioka. And I am a strategist, urbanist, curator, and writer. I have the great joy of running a consultancy called Desire Lines, which is based in Singapore and active globally. And you can find more about me and my work at www.sarahichioka.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-I-C-H-I-O-K-A.com. Well, Sarah, welcome to Climify. Uh, thank you for coming on the program and uh, taking time out of your morning to, to be with me. Thank you, Eric. I'm so happy to be here and congratulations on your new season. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about it and happy that you accepted my offer because you do so much work. You're involved in so many initiatives, one of which is you're also a podcaster. So I hope you enjoy being on the other side of the microphone today. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Always happy to have the tables turned. <laughs> it's not too stressful, hopefully. <laughs> oh no, you're a total pro. You make everyone at ease. That's good to hear. I try. It, it is It is a lot of work, but it, it <laughs> only is something I enjoy doing. And uh, 
what I do think about, uh, first of all, just to put this in about you, what you're doing is really impressive, right? You're um, doing uh, so many things around climate. And I'm wondering what led you to begin that career in climate? I think like a lot of your a lot of your guests that I've um, I've heard you speak with, I've had a, a long and winding journey, mm. um, which I think is actually one of the most exciting things about life is the potential yeah. <laughs> to explore different things and then see how they you know like tributaries to a river how they all kind of lead oh, in a different analogy, direction yeah. through a landscape. Yeah, and um, I. It's hard for me to pinpoint kind of one moment when that the path of the river became explicitly clear. But I remember pretty early on, I think probably in school time. Like when you reading, were really young or college? When I was pretty young, yeah. yeah. Um, reading, probably high school, um, reading a quote from the writer Alice Walker oh. and she says something like to paraphrase my memory of it something like activism is the price I pay for living on the planet oh. and I think that obviously you know when you think about price that's a very transactional metaphor mm -hmm. but nevertheless I think that there's something about that sense of it's just part of what you do right. <laughs> to and I thought was a really interesting framing of it, a really powerful framing of it. And that has somehow stuck with me uh, through almost everything that I've done in my career. When it comes to the, the kind of more climate specific focus of it, that's a lot more recent, but I'd say that the emphasis on cultural transformation mm -hmm. uh, towards, you could call it transition and call it sustainability. Um, most recently looking at calling it regeneration. Yeah. I think that that impulse has always been there, but I think like, like many people, it's really been only in the last 10 years that the alarm signals on climate mm. that they cut through all of the other noise and nonsense uh, yeah. modern consumer culture <laughs> throws in our way to distract us um, from that urgency. So I'd say to define it as climate work, it probably only, um, I could only credibly say that in the last decade. Yeah. Well, you were talking to me before we started recording about um, a time you were in London and you had to use ice cubes to cool down your computer because there was no air conditioning. And I'm wondering, is that was there moments like this that where climate affected you too, where those alarm bells went off, or or was it something you were reading, or, or what happened for you there? I come from a place of tremendous privilege. I've you know grown up in, I grew up in the United States in California, then worked for a large chunk of my career in the UK and then now in Singapore. And if, you know, there are many things that those three places have in common in terms of being relatively insulated um, mm -hmm. from the frontline effects of, of the climate emergency. Um, but that said, we all increasingly are exposed. You know, the signal becomes clearer and clearer. Mm -hmm. And um, I certainly will 
can see that in uh, the region that I grew up in, in California, where, you know, my parents have had friends displaced um, yeah. through fires. And uh, similarly here, you can, um, in, in previous years, we have had very strong um, air pollution from the kind of uh, free cutting and burning of forest in our region mm -hmm. to support industries that completely benefit Singapore. So the feedback loops, I think, are becoming much clearer and the signal becomes much stronger that we kind of, we can sense it in a much more embodied way. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I, I have a friend in California, John, who he was working on, um, if you're familiar with the author Octavia Butler, she has mm -hmm. a couple of books, uh, Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talent, that he's involved with adapting into graphic novels. And he said while he was working on those, which take place in the future in California, this dystopian apocalyptic future where climate and all this other stuff is, is really affecting us. He was personally affected in that he was seeing, you know, the fires near Riverside where he's from, um, the flooding. And it was like he was living through Octavia Butler's book, which takes place, you know, in the future. And, and it hit him really hard and he had to stop and take breaks a lot from working on this project because here's this dystopian future and, and it's there right now. Absolutely. I think that's, this is such an important point because I know that, you know, part of the work of Climify is thinking about climate narratives, right? And yeah. uh, there are, there are amazing artists who have that advanced sensing power, <laughs> yeah. the Octavia Butlers of the world, um, right. who could decades in advance kind of foresee um, where, th how things might play out. But I think for many of us who maybe are not as gifted um, with those, with our future antennae that really, and even, even I think so many of us are not as deeply empathetic as we could be in terms right. of understanding these, you know, frontline communities who have been facing these risks of climate emergencies, destabilization for decades. Mm -hmm. So, you know, someone like me coming from a position of kind of insulated privilege, I can say, as I, as I did to you, you know, earlier in our conversation, oh, I think my work's focused on climate more in the last decade. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I would attribute that a human challenge of being able to truly feel embodied empathy mm -hmm. for situations that are outside our realm of lived experience. Yeah. And I think that that's a huge area of work for all of us. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, to deal with is how, yeah. we, how we break through that. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. And, and I think there's also like at least uh, a little bit here living in the U S with the amount of gun violence that happens here. Right. We, you know, it's, it's, I compare it sometimes to climate in that, you know, there's there's a sense of numbness when you read that news, uh, another shooting, mm. and do you empathize with that person? Of course, but it's also like 
you haven't experienced that kind of devastating loss, right? So it's 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 a challenge to know exactly what they're feeling, but you can put themselves in your shoe their shoes. Now, I think that's in the media a lot here where climate isn't. Mm. So that's what makes it, I think, harder for a lot of us in the US. That's just my thought on it that yeah. empathize. Like we don't know what's going on in, you know, Singapore, for instance, when it comes to climate. Yeah. US media does not cover that for sure. Yeah, again, yeah, we're we're all um we're, we tend to be most interested in our own patch. All right. And, yeah. uh, people people that we can recognize, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, it's a big one. It's a big one. Yeah. Well, you're you're a writer just like Octavia Butler. You're a curator. A oh gosh. I yeah. am a writer, but I am definitely not just like Octavia <laughs> Butler. Let's make that really clear for the record. We're <laughs> genius, genius level versus um, hey, I had to segue yeah. in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah, do a lot of work. Just for clarity. Right? Yeah. Just yeah. for clarity, but you're a good writer. Yes. You do a yeah. lot of good Thank work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Urbanist, do do all of these happen separately in your climate work, or, or are they more like overlapped and connected? I think everything happens in layers and in constellations, and you know, different things emerge and come to the fore at different times or in different projects. Mm -hmm. But you know, earlier on in my career, I felt, I would feel a lot of embarrassment. Is that the right word? I don't know. What, what, what I feel about? a lot of, I'd feel a lot of like, I think it's embarrassed. I feel a certain hesitation in talking about how many different things I was excited about doing oh. because somehow I thought that to be a specialist was the ideal end state. Okay. But now that I've had more time with it and maybe like been able to work with more people who like me are really most energized by being engaged in multiple, on multiple channels or in multiple layers that I realized that for me at least the calling is to think about the points of intersection or learning and the transference of, of conversation practices discourse uh, mm -hmm. between multiple fields is actually where I have the most to contribute. You like the gray so, areas, it sounds like. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's me too. That gray is, yeah. Saying that actually some people are going to do one color really, really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I'm a lot more interested in kind of a mixed palette and how oh, yeah. the different colors can come together in combination. That's a good way to describe it. That I feel that that is a good way to also describe me and my interests in that uh, I also have a paper making studio where kind of a hoping to be more, be more of a regenerative practice. And at least oh, here cool. on campus, that's what people know me for, right? Because it's mm. campus and they're asking me. You're the paper you, guy. Yeah, you, I'm the paper guy. And then they, <laughs> they're they asking me about doing this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm also 
wait, you're you're doing a podcast? Wait a second, I thought you were the paper guy, right? And <laughs> the paper boy. And but I'm I'm I got to the podcast through these these in-betweens things that you described really well. So uh yeah, I like that. I like that color analogy too. We just have to be careful that we don't mix them all together so right. that they become <laughs> it's all muddy. It's a muddy, muddy. mess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's more like different color combinations at different times from a yeah, from a broader palette, I'd say. All the work that you do, right, uh seems to come together in your consultancy called Desire Lines and can you talk to us more about the impact you're trying to create with this consultancy? Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I think it's important to frame this by sharing that in previous roles that I had, that I've had, I've had the great um, privilege of leading or being involved in leadership of organizations or projects that were incredibly public facing. So we might have a strong public program strand to what we did, or might, we might be um, making exhibitions. And that is all about how public your conversation can be. Um, and with Desire Lines, we're taking a slightly different approach in that we are trying to help organizations, whether they are public or private sector, who are in a moment of transition, it could be in a mergers and acquisition situation, it could be in a change of leadership, it could mm -hmm. just be, I mean, we, we actually, all of us by rights are in transition right now as we try to think about how we oh, sure, yeah. um, face the future. Um, and a lot of that work, I believe, is best done not immediately in the public eye, that it's important to be able to create space where people feel safe to be vulnerable, to share their wildest dreams, but also their biggest fears, and to share what the very real constraints uh, they might be up against, and then where we can help them untangle what is an actual constraint and what is an imagined mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> constraint. Um, so I think that's an important uh, important frame for what we do at Desire Lines um, in comparison with some of the other more public work I do through um, building exhibitions or writing or being involved in other organizations' public programming, which I all cherish. But I wondered if you, do you know the term Desire Lines from landscape design and urban design? Because that so many of our collaborators and clients um, when they first connect with us, kind of scratch their heads and say, what does, <laughs> what is, what is a desire line? What does it mean? Yeah, no, um, I, I don't. And I, I, when I first saw it, I thought about, is this like, I don't know, it feels like it could be a dating thing. I don't know what the desire Oh my <laughs> goodness. So you were not the first. I have actually, if it's not oversharing, I have actually had multiple encounters with, um, with folks at, you know, work networking receptions who, when we first exchange name cards, yeah. have a very different impression of what it is that we do. Uh -oh. And it's hilarious because I was, this is an example of how um, our bubbles can blind us to the possible mm -hmm. interpretations. Yeah, I can see that happening. I, you know, I'm trained as an urban designer and it's a really, within urban design, you know, landscape architecture, it's a, it's a pretty well-known 
term, which is a desire line or a desire path is a path that is created on the ground through the footsteps of pedestrians who, when they choose shortcuts that planners or designers might not have thought they would take. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a book out by the design organization IDEO and they, I think it's called like thoughtless acts or something like that. Mm. And it's looking at how exactly what you just described, how people are actually using objects and space. Um, Got it. Okay. That's actually a really cool term then. Yeah. And I think if you, you can take that both literally, I mean, I do have a design background, but I think also Understanding it as a metaphor, particularly from the perspective of organizations, whether they're government agencies or private sector businesses or NGOs who are trying to understand their position in relation to others, um, that to, to understand actually that you can have these formal intentions of how things are going to work and how you're going to do things, but you also need to appreciate that other people are going to have their intentions, their desires, Mm -hmm. the routes that they want to take. And so investing the time to understand your organization, your program, or, you know, yourself as an individual in relation to all of those other inhabitants of the city or, you know, users of a, particular service, um, et cetera. So we, we, I I like it as uh, despite the potential for a naughty (laughs) misinterpretation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, I, I, I do, I think my team and I appreciate it as a sort of metaphor in thinking about how we work together with our partners to think about their transformation journeys. Oh, got it. Got it. Uh, you you wrote once um, in an article that I read online about the possibilist mindset. Is that something that comes up in in your consultants' work? Is it because I the way that you're talking about transformation? I'm wondering if that's the possibilist mindset. Yes. So I absolutely love this term. It's a term that my uh, co-author of my book, Flourish, Michael Pollan, who's an amazing. Um, biomimicry expert and architect based in London. And he and I borrowed it from a public health expert called Hans Rosling. And uh, we've kind of borrowed it from him and then taken it in our own direction as happens with terms in culture as they travel. Um, But essentially the idea of a possibilist mindset is moving beyond our standard binaries of being an optimist or a pessimist. So if you, um, you know, if you read yet another news story about gun violence, or you read yet another news story about climate breakdown in a different part of the world and, or your own backyard. um, (laughs) Do you think, do you think the pessimist is, oh my gosh, this is all going to hell in a handbasket, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing we can do. It's over. Um, or the optimist might say, don't worry, <laughs> Elon Musk and his buddies are going to come up with some amazing tech fix 
And AI is going to sort this out. And if we just hang in there, it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> and I think what a possibilist mindset instead tries to do is to take a closer look at the actual realities of the situation, determine our position in relation to them. So how do we want this situation to resolve itself? Yeah. And then understand our own position in relation to both the realities on the ground and our desired outcome. So the constellation of those three things. And one of the reasons I am so, so, so excited that you have chosen to use the Project Drawdown categories of climate action to shape this season mm -hmm. is that I feel like Project Drawdown is one of the best examples um, that one could point to in the climate space of that possibilist mindset. You know, they'll be glad to hear that. I hope so. We do give them a shout out in our book, Flourish. Oh, good. Um, but I think that it's, you know, it doesn't deny the severity of the challenge that we face, but it sets a very clear path. We want to get to the point of drawdown and um, they assemble this amazing brain trust mm -hmm. of experts from multiple disciplines to think about how each of us in our different categories of work or community or, you know, all the different ways that we are human, right? Not just our professional context can best contribute towards this shared goal. Um, so it's not a, just leave it to the experts. It's not a, <laughs> this is, you know, it's the end of earth. So yes. Yeah, so what we, what we try to do uh, is to contribute to both parts of that. I'd say the, the, envisaging what's actually possible. And um, so I could share one example of that. So some of the work that we do is pro bono mm -hmm. um, where we work with nonprofits or other kind of community interest organizations um, to use our advisory skills to support them at, much in the same way that we would with, um, with our private sector clients, but at a either highly subsidized or pro bono uh, rate. And so one of those, uh, one such project was fairly early on in the company's history, kind of 2018, 2019. That's, you know, a pivotal time in terms of climate with IPCC 1.5 degrees report. Really, right. really, really, you know, what we talked about, that the signal becoming so clear. Um, and it was a time when there was large-scale global mobilization by organizations like 350.org Mm -hmm. In the context of Singapore, they sort of street level mode, um, street level mobile mobilizations that you would see on the streets of a London or a Sydney or a, at the time Hong Kong, um, due to our political context here, that's just not possible. And yeah. um, so what we did instead was um, work with the support of 350.org to think about reorientating that impulse, like wanting to really wanting to be part of that global movement um, to create a public art competition um, for young Singaporean residents between 12 and 25 years old where we called them to creatively envision 
society's swift and just transition to a clean and green economy and away from uh, fossil fuels. And this was a way of, I suppose, bringing other people into the conversation, which you could term activist, um, who might not normally... I would say so. I feel like you're an activist within the system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm saying for the, for the, for the young artists, for example, some of them might never have considered this as a topic. I see. Okay. To engage their creative skills, and similarly, we assembled. Um, I think so much of what Desire Lines do is is about pulling people into these different constellations of impact. So the 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 group of people who we assembled to be the judges for the competition equally, you know, some of them might see themselves as active in the climate space, but others might see themselves as active in contemporary arts or active in design. And so trying to bring so many more people into this conversation to envisage the positive outcome that we want at the end um, and not just focus on what we don't want. Although obviously that's a key part of it. Well, it does sound like with the that particular example, and maybe maybe the others too, you're doing what Drawdown Labs is advocating and that every job is a climate job, right? Even without the title or not, right? Whatever you're doing, you're connected to this somehow. Absolutely. And if you're you're connected to it, if you if you think that you're not connected to it, you're connected to it, but in a different direction, right? right? I think <laughs> yeah. that that framing so positive. Yeah, every job's a climate job. Yeah. From a possibilist perspective, what are you going to make of that prospect? I mean, another to share one other Desire Lines project that I can talk about publicly. Um, yeah. We were competitively appointed last year to put together the sustainability transformation strategy for the Singapore Furniture Industry Council. And um, they're one of a number of trade associations who are active here. And this was a great example of the power of a group of businesses from very, very different backgrounds, realizing that they had the power to come together to think about the direction that they want their industry to move in, um, in um, in alignment with that. There's something here called the Singapore Green Plan for 2030, and um, that's trying to line up all of Singapore's different sectors towards building a low carbon future. Um, and this, our client, the Singapore Furniture Industry Council, we're one of we're really an early adopter and thinking about okay, well, what can what can businesses of all sizes within our membership do to support this transition? And again, the possibilist mindset, we started with mapping and identifying members and stakeholders, tangible needs on the ground, and use that as an opportunity to distill what opportunities or gaps there there were in current systems and capacities. And so it was really, and and in the aspirational bit, right? We identified the key global and local sustainability trends for the industry, and then also looked to identify role models and success cases um, from other markets that might be further along in their sustainability transformation journeys, but that have key relevance for Singapore. And I think because we started by working with them and their 
I mean, they're such a really, really beautiful client because they were so willing to see their members as their members are Mm. and empathize with the fact that they were, some of them would be super far along. You know, they could be cited as international best practice in um, their green supply chains. And then others are innovative design and innovative materials. And then others are just, you know, a small third generation business who their, you know, their biggest objective for decades has been just like making payroll. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The basic thing you need to do, right? Yeah, exactly. And the fact that they were willing to, or were, were very keen to prioritize understanding the actual profiles and where people's, where, where the real opportunities or the real gaps were amongst the membership. It's now really exciting a year on to see how they are moving to implement by, you know, really shining a light on those who are cutting edge leading mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, moving towards a green and decarbonized economy. And then, but, but they're not neglecting or in any way shaming those who need more help and investing in the fundamental skills and knowledge base and capacities um, that those businesses need to move to the next level. So everyone can move together in this shared shared goal of transformation, but starting from where they're really meeting them, where they really were. Wow. Okay. That... <laughs> That sounds like a really, um, well, that, that project to me sounds like something where you swap out the industry, right? Not, not necessarily furniture to, but to something else. And, and I could see what you do at desire lines, helping all these other industries too, with that kind of same strategy. Is that kind of how you look at it? We would really, I mean, we would love to, <laughs> We because I think that there's so much more power when we begin to think of ourselves in constellation with others. And mm-hmm. um, then I felt like there was so much more power for us to be engaged by the council than by, say, if just one of their larger businesses had engaged us. I see. Well, I want to get to your your new book, Flourish. Um, I love the title, uh, Full title is Flourish, Design Paradigms for a Planetary Emergency. You co-wrote it with Michael Pollan. And I'm interested in talking more about it because you talk about these regenerative principles to help designers. And that's a topic for me that I'm very interested in, the idea of regenerative design. And I'm wondering how you define that in the book and, and maybe it that percolates into your um, consultancy too. Yes. So... This was such a a wonderful collaboration. I felt so lucky to be able to come together with Michael again. We'd collaborated on one exhibition in London uh, before I relocated to Singapore. And then both of us, we'd been in touch for, you know, for years. But I think the IPCC's 1.5 degrees report really crystallized that thinking in the sense Mm -hmm. of urgency to think about um, knitting our ideas together and then putting them out in the world. Um, And it was also 
spurred on by the growing use of the term regenerative. So kind of forward-thinking practitioners like the Regenesis Group have been talking about regeneration in a design and development context for years. But suddenly we saw this efflorescence of the term being used in relation to fashion, say, or um, very prominently in in discussion of, of agriculture and food systems. And we thought that it was a really opportune time to examine that word and try to put some, because we've seen the term sustainability so devalued since it first came into the common, uh, kind of common usage in the 80s, um, to think, actually, this new term is gaining traction. Is this a key opportunity to examine the mindsets that shape everything that we do and redefine where we want to go? Um, based on this fundamental mindset shift, as opposed to a move towards making slightly better codes <laughs> for things, <laughs> or you know, it. it's like slightly adjusting regulations. And so that's why that's why we have paradigms in the title that we've uh, Michael and I have assembled. What we see is five key paradigms or mindsets that to us embody regeneration. We know they're not exclusive. We know that others will have um, have paradigms or principles that they want to contribute to the conversation too. And we really welcome that. But for us, there, there were these five fundamentals and um, our overall ambitious definition of regenerative practice is that which supports the flourishing of all life for all time. So this is taking a much more bioinclusive approach, moving beyond just a, the human-centric design as the ideal goal. Um, so design for all life, and it's taking a much longer view. So for all time, moving beyond the quarterly or annual reporting cycles, let alone the 24-hour news cycle right. <laughs> that so many of us are bombarded with, right? They're distracted by. And we've been really excited. It came out a year ago and I've just been overwhelmed, really. Like it really exceeded both of our expectations oh, in great. terms of engagement with it and how it connects with other people's conversations and practices. Well, I like the idea of like these five principles and I guess I'm gonna to have to read the book to to, to find out. But <laughs> I'll I, send you a copy. Okay, yeah, I get the special treatment. But or the rest of you if, guys, you need to buy the yeah. book. But we um, also have we also have an audio version that's recently come out. If um, for those who feel a bit overwhelmed voice? by reading, you read the book. We didn't. So because it's co-authored, um, we debated this for a long time. But because we really do feel like. All of the passages are, it's two, you know, it's really our two hands yeah, holding the pencil voice. or holding the mouse. Right. Um, we, so we went with a voice artist who is female like me, but <laughs> English like Michael. <laughs> right. So it's sort of a, and the, yeah. Okay. That makes exactly. perfect sense. Good job. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was interested in the five principles um, for many reasons, but one of them was that Last season, I had on the program 
um, this soil scientist named Lainey Signer, and she proposed the idea of could designers take the, the five principles of healthy soil and apply that to regenerative design. And so that like kickstarted tons of ideas for me. So I definitely want to read what you two wrote because I want to see like, hey, we might be on the same page here about how, how this all could come to pass. That's so beautiful. And I think one of the really, um, one of the larger lessons is how can we look to the rest of nature for new models, new examples, and these can be practical or applied lessons that we can learn in terms of how we design and develop. They can also be metaphorical, right? How we think about things. And yeah. I love that idea of looking at soil health because it's 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 a way of moving us beyond mechanistic metaphors that often can really hold us back. Um, but it's yeah. interesting, we actually in the, um, I wonder how this relates to, in the book we have, we've adapted um, a matrix uh, from Rodale and Rodale about tendencies towards regeneration. Oh, um, yeah. Where they look at how tendencies, so obviously agriculture is, the field of agriculture is where I think regenerative discourse first entered the industrialized <laughs> Yeah, that's where I, mean, so I heard too. That's what I heard. Yes, exactly. So many of the principles obviously relate directly to indigenous stewardship practices, but as presented um, in our industrialized world. But they, Rodale and Rodale, talk about they, they kind of look at these different tendencies, whether it's pluralism or protection or purity. It's all peace. I'll read it out: <laughs> pluralism, protection, purity, permanence peace, potential, and progress. And then they they show how that maps across agriculture, communities, and personal life. Ooh, I have to look. And I think that looking at how we can find these threads of development running across all scales or running across multiple fields and um, of involvement is really, really powerful. So I'm so glad you raised that example of soil health. Yeah. I wonder then, you know, looking to nature is what you just said. And, and is that what you want whoever reads the book to be one of your main takeaways from, from reading it? Certainly. I think I would want to see that embedded in uh, an even deeper mindset shift, which would be understanding ourselves as nature. So we're not um, adopting an approach like a, a biophilic approach, which is great, but bio, like general, general theories of biophilic design are nature is good for us. We humans love nature. So let's design more nature into everything that we do. But right. that still maintains the boundary between understanding ourselves as separate from nature. Similarly, um, if, if, interpreted, um, if interpreted narrowly, you could say that biomimetic design, so design that learns from and copies from nature, um, you could still, again, if it's interpreted narrowly, see that as the human is separate from nature. Yeah, that, that's but how I, I see it. 
Yes. So the mindset shift that Michael and I are advocating for is actually designing as nature. So understanding ourselves, humans, yes, human individuals and human communities as integrated parts of the rest of the web of life. And what does it look like to design when you understand that embeddedness and reciprocity? Yes, we are, we are mammals too, right? So we should. Absolutely. <laughs> we should, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that is something that um, when I when I look at biomimicry, um, I'm inspired by a lot of the things that come out of that. And maybe it's just my misunderstanding of the full holistic nature of it. But I always feel like they, the solutions I see don't really do what you just described as you're part of, you are nature. You're not just mimicking it, right? Because I think that mimic is the key word that I see a lot in biomimicry. And this is where it's so important to not just take terms at face value, but also spend the time understanding what are common definitions? You know, what do we want this to mean so that we can live into that meaning? So something like biomimicry, I mean, you know, the amazing um, you know, early early thought leaders in that space, like Janine Benyus, or like my co-author, Michael Pollan, who is a truly kind of holistic biomimicry expert, they would always understand it as designing as a part of nature. But mm-hmm. if the term travels and is cherry-picked <laughs> without right. that sort of holistic definition, but also the practice that goes with the definition um, carried through, then you end up with this incomplete idea that it's just about, it's kind of a form finding exercise. Um, and it's, and similarly, you know, we should, we should have really clear eyes about, you know, in, in the climate space, that term can already be pretty actively misappropriated, right? And similarly for regeneration or regenerative design, um, you can see a lot of people being excited by the term, but not necessarily investing the time to really go through the necessary fundamental transformations. Um, So I, for example, don't call myself a regenerative designer. I don't call Desire Lines a regenerative consultancy because we are not there yet right you know that is the that is the end goal but just like i really love the um the research collective just dream towards decolonial futures i don't know if you're familiar with their work but i think similarly so far i'd say the work that i'm doing is gesturing towards regenerative futures right you're you're kind of we are living towards, we are living towards and into uh, this new way of being, but we have to, we have to avoid overclaiming, I'd say. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree yeah. with that. Because I even see that with, you know, people who are like us, right? You know, interested mm-hmm. in sustainability included as part of our work and life and, but we're not, you know, we're not sustainable. We're still working towards that. And yeah. Yeah, even in, in the in the design classroom where I am most of the time at work, it is something where uh it I think it's misinterpreted by the students too, where it's they don't think of it as a mindset all the time. Some do, of mm-hmm. course, 
but they mm-hmm. say, oh, I did this and I collected rainwater. So I have a sustainable project. Well, yeah, you did one thing really good. Good job. But yeah. yeah, there's a whole other thing here. So, well, I wonder too, like you were talking about what you hope to do in terms of getting to that regenerative future for your work. So what's next in your work? What's next for Desire Lines? And are you writing another book that we need to be aware of? Or <laughs> what's going on with you? Um, oh, thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. Um, sure, yeah. I'd say we're, we're developing in several directions. One is that necessarily during the pandemic period, um, we did... Our area of impact, I would say, did contract largely to Singapore. And I've really, really, really enjoyed all of those initiatives we've been involved with. But we do have um, strong ambitions to make sure that Singapore is situated within the context of its broader region. I mean, Southeast Asia is incredibly dynamic and diverse place, which is also really going to be at the front lines or is already at front lines of impacts from the climate emergency. So, but there are also so many amazing deep cultural traditions across the region that um, can help to form some of the basis for a reimagining of how things could, could be rather than just accepting a kind of industrialized, industrialized framework helicoptered in and dropped down. Um, So we are very keen to build meaningful relationships and partnerships across Southeast Asia. Um, And one of my colleagues is already investing time um, in leading that work. And then I am beginning to come to the, the space that a lot of elders who I really admire and have learned so much from have kind of they've 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 walked the path ahead of me, but <laughs> fundamentally understanding that the work that we want to realize out in the world is fundamentally interrelated with the work that we need to do mm-hmm. between ourselves, like you know, between Eric and Sarah. And also within ourselves um, as individuals. And I have witnessed more times than I can now count how organizations or individuals who are so values aligned in terms of the conversations that they're having publicly, they're doing such amazing work, are not really at peace with themselves or in right relation to their colleagues, members of their family, you know, other organizations. Sounds like you're also like a a therapist too. Oh goodness. No, I'm not sure that I feel called to doing that special work, (laughs) but oh my goodness, I have so much respect for, for professionals who work in that space. Yeah. Um, But, but because you know, we're a small team. We always work in constellation, in collaboration with others. That that is definitely an area where we want to forge strong partnerships because I feel it will yeah. fundamentally strengthen the trans the organizational or program transformation work that we're called to by 
bringing on board collaborators who can help create that space for people to be truly vulnerable, to really get to the crux of what might be holding back that transformation that we all want. <laughs> I think I need to go through need. your program. Yeah. I think <laughs> this sounds really interesting. Maybe you can join us on co-creating it, Eric. I don't think okay. you need to go through it passively. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, we're always working on stuff. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Always, always learning, yeah. right? Always learning, always transforming. Yeah. You have to. And, and that mindset that you hope to change. I mean, people have to go through that journey on their own, but having that guidance clearly will help. Absolutely. Having the guidance and having the community to do it in. Yeah. And having having positive examples of the ways in which others have found, you know, other individuals or communities or organizations have found their way forward to 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 live to live towards and into the new mindsets is always really powerful. I agree. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for you and I hope this um, goes really well and you continue to do great work there. And um, speaking of work, um, come to my last question for you. And it's about my work, my job. You are a designer, mm -hmm. so you can mm -hmm. um, jump into this question with a little bit more ease, right, than maybe some others. But I'm I'm asking you in this question to assume the role of design educator just for a moment. And you have the opportunity to assign students a project or, or organize a whole class. And considering all your work and experience, what would you do if I asked you to teach my class? Oh my gosh. Um, I have so much, like therapists, I have so much respect for design educators because it really <laughs> is a, um, it's a huge responsibility and I have so much respect for my friends and colleagues. I mean, I guess, the the easy version would be to say to try to design it around try to design um in a way that tries to address each of the five regenerative design paradigms that we identify and flourish so the first one would be adopting a possibilist position in relation to the situation that you're finding yourself in um, the second would be thinking about your role as a designer, as a steward of living systems who's fundamentally embedded within right. uh, those living systems. So asking the question that Janine Benyus and her consultants, he also always ask, what solutions already exist in this place? Then thinking about a longer now. So what is the time frame beyond, you know, what is the 10 year time frame for your project? What is the 50 year time frame for your project? What is the hundred or thousand year time frame for your project? Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean can you perpetuate it for that long, but rather what changes might we see within the broader system that you're designing into? that might have, have grown in response to your design work, then how can we think about principles of mutualism, 
collaboration and citizen activism um, in the project. So, so much of design is has traditionally followed a format that's about cultivating competition. Um, but this is about how can your design project benefit others and how will you in turn, um, will it in turn be strengthened by accepting or inviting the support of others? And then finally, orientating the design brief that you set for yourself towards the ambitious but really fundamentally existential goal mm -hmm. of planetary health. So, so much design is, you know, happens within a context of which we tend to think that what's of most value is contributing to economic growth measured quite crudely. Um, but how do we think about as we're designing in symbiosis with others on a longer time frame as a part of nature, maximizing our individual capacity uh, to expand our agency and make change in the direction we want? How is that all in service of a broader thriving planet? So it's a really easy design brief, Eric. I'm sure yeah, I mean, people are going to have gonna no be, problem with this. They're probably going to yeah. be done in, in a couple of days. Yeah, done by the weekend. Um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a question worth trying to answer, right? I mean, it definitely is the, what is it, trillion dollar question at this point, right? How, mm. how do we how do we continue our 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 lives? Um, on this planet in a way where we can flourish, right? Well, I, we're out of time and I really appreciated this conversation with you and I'm going to have to um, read your book uh, sooner than later now after hearing all about it and uh, wanted to ask you where, again, we could uh, find you online to learn more about your consultancy and, and all your work. Sure. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the book. You can find links to my company, Desire Lines, and also to Michael's and my book, Flourish, as well as my own uh, personal professional social media accounts at my website, which is sarahichioka, all one word, dot com. So that's S-A-R-A-H-I-C-H-I-O-K-A dot com. Well, thank you again, Sarah. It was a pleasure spending time with you today. Thank you, Eric. I can't wait to listen to the other episodes in this series. Oh, thank you. Well, stay tuned because they'll be coming out soon. Climify is produced, edited, and engineered by me. A huge special thanks this season to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding. Matul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help, Bianca Sandico as our new podcast manager, and Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on helping to improve the offerings of this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results, and in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers. <laughs>